Okay. Um, I wanted to start tonight by telling you a story um, um, from my uh, recent visit to Hungary. And uh, it does have some, um, some purpose to it, not a whole lot, but um, um, l- let, me just, let me just share this with you and you'll understand. But um, one of the mistakes that we made in this recent trip was that we took way, way, way too much luggage. I, I won't, uh, I won't uh, accuse anyone, <laughs> but uh, um, l- let me just suffice it to say that uh, my wife views dressing as an art form. I, on the other hand, as you might have seen in the videos, had a couple of shirts, and <laughs> that was all I needed. Um, anyway, so when it, when it got time to move around, you know, we were just, and of course, it got worse as the month unfolded because my wife was picking up various little treasures along the way. And so, um, uh, you know, Brent and Becky came over and, um, uh, of course, we were going to be there for a month. And, you know, you got to take some stuff for a month. And uh, Brent and Becky were only going to be there for a week. And so at the end of the week, they said, well, listen, we only brought a reasonable amount of stuff. We'll take one of your bags back. And we thought about it. We thought, well, you know, we better do that. We better take it. Because, I mean, we were, we were lugging luggage up and down the city streets of all kinds of cities. And um, anyway, so um, we packed this suitcase um, full of stuff that we knew we wouldn't want or need. And to give it to Brent and Becky, and, of course, the thing weighed uh, a ton. And um, it, it was a piece of luggage that has those little, it has a little lock to it. And the little lock is a little little um, spinning numbers, you know, that you have to get all the numbers lined up straight. And if you get, you got the little code and, and if it's, a, if you got the right numbers, it'll unlock for you. See, well, you, you know what I'm talking about? You know, it's a way of locking the luggage, little spinning numbers. And um, so I had put all this stuff in here, locked the thing, spun the little numbers so that, you know, they wouldn't. So basically it was locked, you know, a locked piece of luggage that Brent took with him. And of course they, their flight left it, um, Oh, I think like five o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning. And they had to get up at four o'clock in the morning. No, I think he got up at three o'clock in the morning to get out to the airport. And so he gets out to the airport um, with their luggage and this piece of our luggage. And, of course, the people who uh, check you in have a couple of questions they'd like to ask you concerning your luggage. And one of those questions is, did you pack all your luggage. <laughs> well, guys, you got to understand that in uh, uh, Budapest, Hungary, um, they have men walking around there with machine guns on their shoulders, just looking for some kind of um, scurrilous fellow who might be planning some kind of um, <laughs> foul deed. <laughs> so, it's five o'clock in the morning, and Ben's got this big old piece of luggage, and and it's locked. And and the, the lady says, "Did you pack all your luggage?" And um, and Brent, being the kind and and truthful fellow that he is, says, "No." And Becky said, "Don't say that." <laughs> you know, Becky being the you know the uh, my kind of girl. Um, but you know, Brent, and, and before he could realize what he was doing, he was telling the truth of all things. And, um, uh, and so, of course, at that moment, all of the big bad guys come out. And he has a piece of luggage that's locked. 
and he doesn't know <laughs> my little code to get in the luggage to show them that there's nothing in there that is going to harm anybody. Well, um, <laughs> well, I mean, Becky was furious at him, um, and of course they got pulled over, and 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 interestingly enough, uh, I, I, you know, I thought what they would do is break the lock and see what was in there. They let them on that plane without ever looking inside that piece of luggage and, and having been told that a missionary type packed it, which was kind of scary. And um, anyway, um, all of that to say, inside that piece of luggage was this book. <laughs> Actually, there were two of them like this. this um, these were some books, uh, this was a two-volume set that Ronnie Stevens gave me when I was over there. Uh, we were, uh, we, in fact, it was all, it was kind of sweet. Um, I was preaching in a church on a, um, on a Sunday night and um, uh, got through and we were all kind of milling around drinking whatever it is they drink over there um, and um, turned around and there's Ronnie. And uh, he had these books in his hand and he said, um, this is your, um, this is your payment for coming over here, something like that. Anyway. Um, I, I say all that because I want to read you just a paragraph. It's not even a paragraph. It's a, it's a half of a paragraph from this, um, from this volume. Now, I know you've never heard of Edward Griffin, and uh, nor had I, but Ronnie had, and, and, and um, uh, it, he has recommended that I read this, and I've begun to, and it's quite good. Um, you may recall, if you were here last week, that what I was uh, trying to introduce you to is a very controversial section of Romans 7, of, of Romans. Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. A very um, much discussed, much uh, debated. And one of the big issues is, and, and you, you may not see it just yet, but um, on, our, on our last Wednesday night of the year in May, I think I'm going to try to summarize it all for you and just and to, to show you why this is a pretty critical question. And that is, is Paul describing a, a believer in Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 or is he describing a non-believer in Romans, 14, Romans 7 14 through 25? It's pretty important. And, um, and I hope you'll see why it's important uh, later on. But um, last week, I closed up um, my little uh, message with you by giving you five reasons why I'm convinced that Paul is describing a believer's experience in Romans 7, verse, verses 14 through 25. I, I, I uh, articulated those and... Um, um, as I was reading in this volume, uh, he is, this, this, this pastor is not um, dealing with Romans chapter 7, but I want you to hear what he says. It's, it's only about nine sentences, um, and I'll try to explain. But what, what I'm saying is, this man is saying in his diary, this is actually, this is, it's a two-volume diary set of this man's life. And um, this was um, written on February the 14th uh, of um, 1899, I believe. Um, no, no, it's 1799. Whatever. A hundred years, give or take. But, but anyway, he says this. 
I have been lately wishing to be taken up by some mighty power and get forward at once very far in my journey so as to have little to do afterwards to arrive at perfect sanctification. Now, do you hear what he says? He says, um, you know, what I've really been wanting lately is uh, some mighty power, uh, wishing to be taken up by some mighty power, that, that God would do this wonderful trick or this wonderful work that would result in me getting forward very far in my journey. That is, uh, my journey as a Christian, uh, to be at so far, so as to have little to do afterwards to arrive at perfect sanctification. What I wish is that God would do this thing in me that would propel me so far down the road of my own sanctification experience that I would have very little left between me and perfect uh, sanctification. It would all be done. That God would do this quick and mighty work that that would just race me down this path almost all the way to the end. You got that. That's what he's saying in that first sentence. <laughs> and then he says this in, re- in, in response to his own. He says, but this is a fruitless hope. I am enlisted in a warfare. I love this sentence. And every inch of ground must be taken sword in hand. Those corruptions which are constitutional will live with me. And die only with me. They will trouble me through this life. The only remedy is to live near to God. This alone is the water which will quench the fire. The moment I get away from Him, they will always stand ready to harass me and drive me back. Listen to this. Divine enjoyment, spiritual pride, falls, humiliation, prayer, elevation, enjoyment, pride, falls, humiliation, etc., etc., must be my round through life. I have lately found that I ought to turn my heart and soul more immediately to Christ and, like others, mourn for the feebleness of my love to Christ. Now, I don't, I don't know where you got that, but let me... Um, He says, I wish this thing would happen to me that would take me so far down the path of my own sanctification that I'd have only a little bit of ways to go uh, before I'm perfectly sanctified. And he says, but vain hope. Because every piece, every inch that I'm going to gain in terms of this struggle is going to be done with a sword in my hand. Uh, I have these inward corruptions that will live with me for the rest of my life. And they'll trouble me throughout this life. My only hope, my only remedy, is to live near, live near to God. That alone is the water which will quench the fire, living close to God. The moment I get away from Him, um, that's um, all those inner corruptions will harass me and drive me back. And then he talks about this, this cycle that goes on. Divine enjoyment, which leads to spiritual pride. Which leads to faults and humiliation, which leads to prayer, which leads to elevation, which leads to enjoyment, which leads to pride. 
and, and uh, fails, uh, falls, and humiliation. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Throughout his entire experience as a believer. Now guys, all I'm saying is, what, what, what I just read to you is, is written by a man that I, I think um, in terms of um, his, his um, apparent sanctification is far more developed than mine. And he's giving voice to the same thing that I was saying to you last week. That is, what you, what you find described in Romans chapter 7 is the experience of a believer who is wrestling with some corruptions that will not ever be taken away from him. And the cycle of his, his Christian experience is going to be enjoyment, divine pleasure, which takes me to pride, which leads to sin, which leads to falls, which leads to humiliation. And down there I begin to pray. And then God responds. And then it's enjoyment. And then it's pleasure. And then it's pride. And then it's sin. And then it's falls. And it's humiliation. That's the experience that he is describing here. Now, I don't know about the rest of you. But I relate to that heart and soul. Um, the, the, the most dangerous time in my, in my Christian life is when there is the enjoyments and the pleasures and the um, apparent spiritual success which leads to this and then this and this and then this and then this. And every inch that I take, I do so with a sword in my hand. That's what this man's saying. And I thought that gave voice uh, to um, the kind of man that is being described in Romans chapter 7. Now, having said all that, uh, take a look with me again at Romans chapter 7. We're going to take a look at verse 14 tonight. That was kind of a... uh, By the way, I have forgotten to say something, and I need to pause before we get to Romans 7, 14. I need to make an announcement. I meant to do this with the, I get carried away with the backyard burger. Every time I think those things, you know, I just get to, yeah, I get nervous and murky. Uh, um, but anyway, um, Grace Van is in, engaged in a project with the Calvary Rescue Mission. Um, many of you know Calvary Rescue Mission because you know good old Milton Hatcher who founded it and, um, Um, Anyway, the Calvary Rescue Mission, Gracie Van is going to put on a new roof on the Calvary Rescue Mission building, which is down on 3rd Street. Uh, I mean, they're dealing with um, homeless, inner city. It's a tough crowd down there. Uh, Gracie Van is going to put on a new roof for this thing. John Eastat, I think most of you know John. I was hoping John could be with us tonight so I could just point you towards him. But John Eastat, by the way, it has to be done on May 8th. Now, that's, that's their scheduling. You know, it has to be done on May 8th. So, uh, John Eastat is going to head up that whole little effort at getting that roof. Uh, you know, sweet John. Um, on one occasion, uh, told me 
that he reroute this home. He never should have told me that because I happened to remember it. And so called him and asked him to head up this thing. So uh, it's going to be working for the community missions, which, of course, is, uh, Clay is the liaison, Clay Beyond. And so I just, just men, if, you, if you're, you're good at stuff like that and uh, are interested, that's going to be done in John Newton's uh, step. I guess, Clay, you want to, yeah, there's a sign up back there, gentlemen, if you can uh, uh, participate in that thing. But um, anyway, you'll be hearing from, I guess, John Stapp. It's a week from Saturday, so Okay, now back to the seven. Now, guys, um, remember, again, I said to you that uh, we're dealing with the description. Paul's description here is the description of a man who is regenerate, and I even went on to say, I would uh, I think it would be a safe guess to call him that this is not in his uh, uh, immature state. But it was it was Paul at the at the top of his Christian game. He is writing this. Now, uh, as this unfolds, this should be somewhat encouraging to you, and I, and I hope you'll see why. But but guys, um, I gave you five arguments last week concerning why I'm convinced that this so-called Romans seven man is a regenerate man, and it's and it's phenomenal. The kind of um, dialogue that goes back and forth over that issue. What, and, and the men who are on each side of it. But uh, I have concluded we're talking about a regenerate man. Um, and I gave you five arguments. I want to add one argument tonight, which um, um, just to hopefully refresh your memory, or at least to uh, get us rolling. I want to remind you of an incident that I think most of you know all about. I think you know... That Peter did a bad thing. You remember the Apostle Peter? And um, he did a bad thing. What was the bad thing that Peter did? Bob, that's enough from you. <laughs> I, I didn't want the right answer. I wanted the wrong answer. <laughs> I've told you and told you and told you. Give me the wrong answer so that I can make it, you know. What was the bad thing that Peter did? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I could find somebody that was wrong out there. <laughs> when we think of the bad thing that Peter did, don't, you, don't most of you think that Peter denied Christ three times? Don't... Except for Bob. <laughs> now, now, tell me this. That was a terrible thing. Yes. What would, you, what would be your guess? Would you think that Peter did that as a Christian or as a non-Christian? I tell you what, let, let's decide this once and for all. Let's take a vote. How many of you think that at the time that Peter denied Christ... Before Jesus was crucified. You know what I'm talking about. Before, you know, the little uh, servant girl and all that business. How many of you believe that at that moment, Peter was an unsaved man? We have two. Three. All men. 
So that'll, that'll give you some idea that we're probably leaning towards the wrong answer. Um, how many of you think that Peter was a saved man when he did that? Oh, see, I'm sorry, it, uh, Bill, you lost. Did you see the, 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 the vote? Um, guys, there is a, certainly a difficulty right with that question because redemptive history is unfolding and certain things had not taken place, uh, like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all that business. Uh, that, that, that's a kind of a tricky thing. But I would, I would say rather comfortably um, that when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, uh, and, and when, when Christ looked at Peter and says, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was at that point that Peter uh, uh, um, proves that he is a saved man even then. Now, here's my point. Um, the, 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 the group has decided that, people, that Peter was saved then. He did a very, very, very bad thing. They denied Christ. But you see, most of you don't know that Peter did another very, very bad thing. A very, very bad thing. And of course, Bob Wood has already told you about it. It's in Galatians chapter 2. And you remember the, the, the Jewish party called the Judaizers came down and influenced Peter. And, and, and Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was afraid of the rejection of the Jews. In essence, and Paul comes and lambasts him and, just, and, and, and opposes him to his face. Remember that? Very ugly scene in the life of the church. Now, here's the point. How many of you think Peter was a non-Christian then? Oh, we've even lost those three votes. How many of you think that Peter was a Christian then? Tell me, what had transpired between the first bad thing and the second bad thing? Something very significant. Pentecost. The point is, by the way, who was it that preached the first sermon post-Pentecost? That would be Peter. Uh, who in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts is the dominant figure being filled with the Holy Spirit again and again and again? What was his name? He would be Peter. So here's the man who had this crystal clear understanding of who Jesus Christ was. Not only that, had led the church. Not only that had been filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. Not only that, there's two or three other occasions where we're told that Peter is filled. And guess what that man did? He did a very, very bad thing. He basically uh, turned his back on the gospel that he himself was preaching. Because a few Jews got around him and scared the daylights out of him, so he didn't want to get rejected by the Jews, his Jewish friends down in Jerusalem, and so he withdrew from the Gentiles. Do you see the point the point is, here is a man who is at the, I mean, in terms of the food chain, ladies and gentlemen, spiritually, he's at the top. And yet that man did a thing that is equally as blasphemous as his denial of Christ before Christ was crucified. Almost perhaps more blasphemous because Pentecost had occurred. And he was, at that moment in Galatians 2, he was a man filled and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. Which, which would cause one to perhaps conclude 
that he really wouldn't dream of ever doing something that awful, and yet he did. We're terribly sorry, but the last 15 minutes of this message was lost due to a recording problem.